and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick, and today I'm joined by Percy. Hello. And Todd. Greetings. We're here today to chat about the genre of one-page tabletop role-playing games and the niche they occupy in the broader world of TTRPGs. Uh, we thought we'd kick it off by just uh, briefly sort of laying out what I think are the two most popular uh, well-known one-page role-playing games, the first of which is Honey Heist by Grant Howitt, where you play as bears who are also criminals who are trying to steal honey, and the other of which, which is uh, sort of like the one from which many other one-page RPGs flow, which is uh, Lasers and Feelings by John Harper, which is based on the songs of the Double Clicks. It is kind of Star Trek adjacent. You play as the crew of an interstellar spaceship. You explore space. You deal with aliens. You defend the consortium against danger. And uh, Odang Big Pistol My Car with my friend's birthday present inside is a hack of this game. Character creation in these games is often extremely simple and uh, straightforward. So it often involves rolling on tables with a d6 or choosing from a handful of adjectives. This distills the process of conceptualizing a character into a few really specific things like what do they look like? What's their role in the group? What's their style, uh, etc.? It is meant to facilitate the quick play of these games. A lot of them are meant to be done in kind of like one shot, sit down, group of friends, put the game on the table, play the game, done, wrap the story, walk away. Um, I don't know, do either of you can do either of you have any other loves or concerns about this kind of character creation? No, I think that um it's a, an easy way without getting like too in the weeds um, to figure out like what your motivations might be. Um, like often they're drawing from some sort of stereotype, although uh, Honey Heist, largely you're picking the type of bear you are and what your hat is, which has no mechanical effect for you <laughs> one way or another. But you can roll on a, a table uh, to figure out whether you're wearing a trilby, a bowler, or a top hat. Um. I think not to get like a little Stanislavski about it, but I do think it distills to like the things that everybody should know, regardless of what system they're playing in about their character. Like, I think it is extremely useful to know, like what your occupation, like what is the thing that you do normally and what is the thing you're trying to do in the context of this game specifically, which I think is really, really helpful. And my only like thing that I would be like hmm, about is like, what if the thing that I want to do is not within the adjectives, but I think 99% of these games are like, do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> so that's, so that's fine. Yeah. I think a lot of them really leave it kind of open-ended, even though they do give you pick lists or random tables or whatever. And what I, I think one advantage slash disadvantage of this system is always like all of the options are on that one page. Um, and sometimes that means that there are, you know, not as many supporting details as you'd want, like uh, Grin, which is a one page survival horror RPG, um, offers no system for customizing characters at all because it's frankly not concerned with who you are. It's like you can be astronauts exploring an alien spaceship or you can be like teenagers exploring a haunted house, but you're all going to die or probably all of you are going to die. And that's the only thing that that game is like interested in. Yeah, I think the one the only time that like the system has felt like 
a little bit frustrating is because we played a game of lasers and feelings at like a D&D cabin retreat with my home game group. But we had like nine people. So like, of course, the like six or seven options that lasers and feelings presents to you are going to start to feel a little stale when there's nine people choosing from them. Um, but part of what we learned in that experience is also that like, A, you're only playing for a session most likely. So like whatever your objective is doesn't have to be super deep. But also it can tell you a ton about like the things that your character likes and dislikes. And it's really, really easy to build a play, a character that's fun to play that is like a mechanic who loves that the ship goes really fast. And their objective is to find ways to make the ship go even faster. And like that's a fun dynamic to introduce to the table. Um, And like I wouldn't have fun playing that for like 10 sessions, but I would certainly have fun playing that for one. Mm -hmm. Well, I think. I think part of what this is illustrating for me is what I didn't vibe with about Grin, which is mostly like in in the world of one page RPGs is mostly uh, a conflict resolution uh, mechanic and nothing else is really on the page. And I think it's that so many of these other games like Honey Heist, like Glaciers and Feelings, like uh, Crash Pandas give you uh, limited choice but guidance um instead of a blank page and i feel like grin um doesn't give me a sense of like what world is this supposed to be played in what are the characters supposed to feel like or anything like that whereas like oh dang bigfoot stole my car with my best friend's birthday with my friend's birthday present inside um gives you like a very clear sense of tone um and scale yeah sexy and battle I think wizards that, tells you the things that are in that game yeah exactly like there's and not just the names but like on the one singular page um it gives you uh, clear guidance that can help motivate choice. Um, and I think for many people, myself included, like a blank page um, can be uh, like having all any possibility as a choice um, or any choice as a possibility rather um, can become paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, having a focused in like, you are raccoons driving a car in illegal street racing in LA is so specific and so ridiculous um, that it, it tells you what sort of stories you're going to be telling. Um, And I think that that's really exciting and very fun. Um, Whereas like grins removal of all of those things to make it palatable for astronauts or teenagers um, to me feels just more daunting for some reason well i think part of it is that because um to link it back to character creation like a lot of what these things are doing like um in lasers and feelings like one of the like types of things you could like you could be an alien you could be an android you could be a hot shot you could be savvy like those are all like tropes that are related to like science fiction that like if you're familiar with that genre, which you probably are, if you're choosing to play lasers and feelings, like those are things you can latch into and be like, okay, here are like the things for media that I'm going to steal for my mm-hmm. gameplay, um, which you talked about on the podcast before. So I think like having a really, really obvious and clear sense of world and what the like available tropes are within it is really helpful to like deciding what your character is really fast and jumping into gameplay, which is kind of the point of these games. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard when you don't necessarily have a sense of what the world is, because the way that you like quick start into a game like this is, I think, largely about like leaning on tropes or leaning on like heist movies. If you're playing Honey Heist or, you know, uh, racing movies, if you're playing Crash Pandas or whatever. 
segueing away from character creation, uh, which often on these one page um, RPGs is part of it. We also have the resolution mechanics um, to figure out what do you do when conflict arises. Um, often these are extremely simple um, in Lasers and Feelings and in Odang Bigfoot. Um, there's this roll over slash under uh, system where you choose whether you're more uh, lasers or more feelings. Um, you pick a number from two to five. And then when you're trying to do that thing, um, you're either rolling over or under, which will help you kind of accentuate, um, as Nick said in our description of Odang Bigfoot episode, um, helps you kind of like role play that character more. It incentivizes you being more feelings based if that's what your stat is good at and stuff like that. Um, in Honey Heist, um, you have two variable stats. They are crime and bear. <laughs> If I'm remembering properly, fair and uh, criminal, fair and criminal. Um, you start with the same number in both of them, three, um, and then you're always trying to roll under your number. But as your plans um, for crime succeed or fail, um, you get higher in criminal or lower in bear or the opposite. Um, and then in grin, uh, which I think has an interesting mechanic, uh, you're drawing from a deck of cards that's been shuffled. Um, normally, you might draw one card, you might have to draw three cards. Um, you draw any number of cards from the top of the deck and any card other than the Joker is a success. The Joker, however, means instant failure in the form of death or insanity. Um, in these examples, the stats provide a single spectrum to think about the whole range of actions one might take, whether that's lasers and feelings, bear, criminal, uh, risky versus, oh, geez, what's patient um, in Bigfoot? Um, and so how does this change the way that we understand our characters if we're thinking about their abilities solely on these like weird spectrums? Part of it, I think, and this is specific to lasers and feelings, like I wouldn't argue that bear and criminal is the same spectrum as this, but a lot of lasers <laughs> and feelings hacks uh, do like the two things are like reason and emotion in some way. Like a uh, friend of the pod, CJ Linton, has a hack of lasers and feelings called Robots Who Kiss, and the two stats are robot or logic and kissing, um, mm. which is in the same vein. Um, so I think part of it is that like, I think all of us understand ourselves like as people on a spectrum of like reason and logic to emotion. Um, so I think part of it is like, I think that's an easy thing for us to figure out and sort of place ourselves on um, regardless of how sort of abstracted it is from that. Um, well, but, and yeah. the, the criminal of doing a heist often is logic and precarious, whereas the bear of being a bear is perhaps more emotional. So, Oh my God, you out-abstracted me, Todd. What is lasers and feelings <laughs> but the criminal and bear of space? Of, of space, yes. But what I do find interesting about Honey Heist, and I actually, I don't know, do we know which one came first? Honey, Honey Heist, Heist or came Lasers? First. Honey Heist or, came I'm first? I'm sorry, no, Lasers and Feelings came first. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's it. Grant, Grant nice. Howitt, I think, in interviews, refers to Honey Heist as a hack of lasers and feelings in some ways. Well, that's interesting to me because what Honey Heist does is, and I don't think we mentioned this before, but a crucial part of the game is that if you, you start at, I think it's three for mm -hmm. each stat, 
and if you as you go on, like Todd mentioned, you move numbers from one to the other. So if you if your criminal plan succeeds, you might become two bear and four criminal. But if you become six in either direction, you are out of the game because you have sort of you you either apotheosize into like the perfect criminal and betray the group, or you go into full bear freak out on the other end of the spectrum. So Honey Heist offers a like uh, not just a character situation, but a character arc mm-hmm. that is kind of the fundamental spine of the game, really much more so than the actual heist is. There's there's no resolution mechanic for like figuring out what happens at the end of the heist. It's only about whether your bear becomes a criminal or uh, reverts fully into a bear. I think it's interesting, too, because I think like. Oh dang, Bigfoot stole my car has kind of a built-in like way that you know that the game has ended. Um, because like you get to the birthday party um in in some way or another, although that certainly doesn't have to be the end. But I think it's funny, lasers and feelings, like I think doesn't necessarily have that baked in. You sort of just like figure out what the story is and play to find out what happens, to borrow a to borrow a phrase. Um The interesting thing about lasers and feelings is that unlike Bigfoot, it could actually be played in long, like long form play. I probably wouldn't, I and I don't a, think that's what I listen to a podcast that is exactly that. Um, it's it's just o- lasers and feelings. Yeah, it's called Oh These Those Stars of Space. It's by the same people who do Root Tales of Magic, and it's um, they do it uh, episodically, like like episodes of Star Trek, where all of the all of the episodes are self contained adventures, and like the character, like every player has multiple characters that they might play at any given time. And it's sort of like an ensemble cast type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I don't, I'm not necessarily sold that it is like the system that I would choose to do an extended campaign in. Um, There are reasons that it works for them. I don't know that it would work for everybody. Like, I think you need to be really, really good at like improvisation and role play in order to do that. Um, yeah, I think Lasers and Feelings is one of the few games that would actually work as an extended campaign as opposed to a one shot game, unless you develop like some kind of rivalry with Bigfoot or something. <laughs> well, yeah, because Bigfoot and many of the many of the Lasers and Feelings hacks are quintessentially plot focused mm-hmm. and Lasers and Feelings occupies a, a sort of strange middle ground where unlike Honey Heist, it's not it doesn't have that like uh, uh, inevitable character denouement but it does but it also does not have a singular plot that like will definitely be resolved in this one-shot game that is interesting i hadn't thought about that i'm also curious about how different uh mechanics embrace uh or reject the idea of like player agency and character power slash control and sort of writ large, this like central question in a lot of games about player agency and how that appears in these kinds of games. Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting. I always think of this in comparison to like D20 games where you where players are given so much, usually both power and to a certain degree control, even though it's not like narrative control usually. But the the whole system of d20 games that gives you numerical bonuses is meant so that you can have a like right way to do things and in a lot of these games you know like if you're the fighter the right way to solve your problems is by fighting them often 
or, or like the optimal way for you to solve your problems. Uh, and then these games are much more interested in, I feel like, the table interaction mm-hmm. rather than player agency because the mechanic resolution is usually pretty simple it's like pick a number pick whether you want to be trying to roll high or pick whether you want to be trying to roll low and then put yourself in situations to do that or not or in some Mm -hmm. cases like with grin it's because grin is kind of trying to emulate like slasher movies it's just you get no agency or control you just choose what you're trying to do and arbitrarily see whether it works or whether you're murdered by the monster i also think that because like you're making that character on the spot and know that you're only going to play them for a few hours um at least in my experience playing these kinds of games i'm more interested in like am i having fun as a as a player as opposed to like do i feel that my character is being offered opportunities for for agency and growth like um for example in aforementioned nine player game of lasers and feelings that we played on this cabin retreat um i had a series of extremely poor roles and had positioned myself already as like the pilot intern of the ship um and we like boarded an enemy ship and then i ended up like flying out of an airlock or something and dying and then it just became this like running bit where i played like red shirt interns who like ran into danger (laughs) and died very quickly which was which was fun and the game i think offers a lot of opportunities for players to latch on to what is fun about that system for them or what is Mm -hmm. exciting to them um so i think it like is approaching the question of player agency or player um like character power uh, in a way that is less character focused and more about like the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Roll to do something ridiculous. Have a good time. I, yeah, you can, (laughs) you can say um, (laughs) like I, yeah, I pull the mirror off the car door and throw it at Bigfoot or whatever, you know, like it, that's not a particularly wacky example. <laughs> Come to think of it. <laughs> Which is really saying something that that's not a wacky example. <laughs> yeah, like you can you can say some really, really outlandish things. And I think a lot of the joy of these games is like coming up with the most outlandish thing, TM. Well, that makes me think um, if we think of like murder hoboing as the the platonic ideal of what D's rules are trying to do um do we think out ridiculousing each other is the platonic ideal of what um, many ttrpg players are trying to do at the table absent of rules and so does something like these games like honey heist crash pandas odang bigfoot um do those really like speak to the experiences that people are often generating at their tables even if they're not trying to play those games necessarily i think that's a question of like of genre because but i would say that like if you're thinking about people who are like playing games in order to have fun um which like not everybody is playing a ttrpg explicitly for that reason but i do think like in the context in which i think these games really thrive which is like a group of people who are good friends who want to play a TTRPG together for fun. Like that is kind of the platonic ideal of like what you're trying to, to encourage, particularly because I think when you sign up to play a game called like crash pandas or like sexy battle wizards, the tone is set for you and you know that it's about being silly and ridiculous and it's about leaning into that as hard as possible. Um, although I wouldn't say that that's necessarily like embedded in the genre universally. 
Yeah, I think I think the question of what the genre of like a one page RPG or a, a micro RPG even is, is kind of interesting because it's to me when people when the people I see online talking about one page RPGs anyway are talking about them, they're usually talking about things that are either lasers and feelings inspired or honey heist inspired. But there's a lot of things that are. There's a lot of things that feel of that world to me that are not necessarily a page long. And there's a whole lot of games that are one page or less uh, that are absolutely n- not the same thing and not trying to do remotely the same thing. I think for me, the big like defining feature is that there is like one big mechanic around which everything else flows. Um, like there is some kind of big, unique resolution mechanic whether it be like the over under stat thing or a card pull or like um drawing pictures of horses or something like i think it is in my mind it has to do with having this like one big defining thing and then a lot of little things that support it um although certainly there are like outliers to that but i think like the genre of micro rpgs is a separate thing from the genre of like honey heist type one page rpgs which have this like i think very distinct style and tone that is like silly and lighthearted and comedic in its affect yeah i was gonna say that tone is really important because i feel like there's like um there are so many lyric games that are um that are super brief like that but in their sort of like refusal to allow normal play um absolutely feel in no way like all of this like like honey heist or lasers and feelings i feel like we can't put them we can't put like momotos equus hero in the same category even though it is definitely micro because it fits on a business card um and like riverside games we are but worms which is one of my favorite lyric games that percy introduced me to uh is a one word rpg uh and it is definitely not trying to do the same thing. But yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's even a resolution mechanic, though, because I I don't know if either of you got a chance to look at Samuel Mui's Death of a Hero, mm-hmm. which is like explicitly called a micro RPG and doesn't but also feels to me like it has elements of a lyric game because I don't think there's any conflict resolution mechanic. No, no, it's really just like describing the the general idea but behind Death of a Hero is like you're a party of adventurers, one of your friends has fallen um due to your last interaction with like the big villain. And now at their funeral, each of you are sorting through your feelings about this person. Um and like the closest that there is, I feel, to a conflict resolution mechanic is like two people offer offer contrasting views of this imagined third person and you find a way to either accept that both things are true or convince the other person of your point of view. That's as close as we get to conflict resolution, I feel. Yeah, which is like actual conflict resolution, (laughs) not a mechanic. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) Convince your friends that you are right. And I've heard of Death of a Hero being used, and I I love this idea if you have a table that's down for it, but like people have used Death of a Hero as like a session zero type game to start 
like a D&D or other D20 campaign mm-hmm. um, because it you know establishes a whole network of relationships in a party. So it is definitely not doing the same full-on lyric game thing as those other games I just mentioned, but it also is very much about just like storytelling and feeling feelings and not rolling dice or drawing cards or any of those classic game mechanics. Then I think what my answer is is actually about approachability um Mm. because i think what is common to all of these games is that they are relatively easy to like read through once and then pick up and play a lot of the like bigfoot and lasers and feelings have tables on the rpg itself that like gives the gm things to roll for in order to figure out like okay what's the story like what specific uh, obstacles might the people or you know might the players encounter etc etc um honey heist does not necessarily have that but i still think like as a gm it's pretty easy to like kind of roll with like you're encouraged to roll with what the players bring to the table as opposed to like coming in with a tome of like prepared encounters um and i think death of a hero even is something that you could like read through and then sort of be like okay like we can kind of work through this together and figure out how to do this so i think actually the thing that like defines a micro rpg for me is is about approachability and how accessible it is for people to sort of walk into it and be like, okay, like we can sort of pick this up and just run with it. And the sort of celebration of like improvisation and building off of what other players at the table are bringing, um, perhaps with an emphasis less on story and more on the experience of playing the game together. Even though you do see like some games have a really, really strong story hook, like Bigfoot versus games like Grin or Petal Paladins, which is a, um, a one page RPG uh, where you play as plant warriors um, and it's very cute, um, which are very, very open-ended and sort of leave a lot of room for you to figure out what the story might be. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think for me, what might define that is is this degree of like approachability versus a game like D&D 5e where you have to learn a lot of rules before you feel maybe equipped to play. Yeah, I think the one like, not risk exactly, but the the kind of counterbalance to that is that it it does seem to me like some of these games really expect people to dive in, um, which I have found can be challenging for players, especially players who are new to like tabletop role playing games in general. Um, I some of these games I think are absolutely beautiful, but also I feel like if I gave you know some of my friends who have never tried a tabletop role playing game even lasers and feelings or Bigfoot, they'd be like, so we just like make everything up in a way that, you know, a, a D20 game often has more kind of graspable tactics and like strategies. If you've ever played, you know, chess or like a board game, then the whole thing about like, if you're like uh, fucking flanking, you know, like if you're on opposite sides of the monster, then you get to roll with advantage or you get a plus two or whatever. Choose choose your poison. Like that's a, a thing that new play pl- that people who are new to tabletop games can hold on to rather than just being like, make up a Star Trek. I think the I think the counterbalance to your to your counterpoint um, is games that are GM'd versus GM-less micro RPGs. Mm-hmm. Like I think it is it can be a useful bridge to sort of have um, a GM who to somebody who is like in a honey heist game who is like what the fuck is going on? Um, I have a fez and I have no other information about my character. <laughs> um, 
like it can be really helpful to have a GM who can sort of say like, oh, you know, here's the situation. What do you do? Um, what do you think your character might do based on the fact that they are like, you know, this grizzled old jewel thief who was who is the face of the criminal heist group or whatever. Um, like, I think in those cases, the GM is what can really make or break that experience as opposed to a GM who is very much just like, I don't know. Tell me what you tell me what you're tell me what you think. Does Honey Heist have a GM? I think it does. Um, sure could. Well, it, it certainly could. Yeah, I'm just realizing I didn't think of it when, of the, I, when I read the game. But All of the games of it that I've seen have been GM'd. Okay, interesting. It's just interesting because it says nothing about it one way or the other. It does say page one for everyone. And actually, come to think of it, we don't have page two. <laughs> I thought that was a cutesy. Oh, you're probably right. Okay. Oh, well, then Honey Heist isn't a one page RPG. Well, it's a lie. Damn it. Um, no, I'm kidding. Well, because I think. I was the backside of the page. <laughs> yeah. I would say in many ways, um, I feel like it would be easier to sit down with someone who has no experience to try something like Honey Heist and play, like, and actually play versus something like D&D 5e for someone who has no experience with it. Like, I think the the barriers to entry are much lower. It is much lower stakes. I didn't have to fill out three tax forms to get here. Um, like, and I think that that's a great thing because I think there's a lot of people, like, I have tried to introduce my partner into uh, tabletop games, and he is mostly averse. <laughs> um <laughs> I did try to start him on Hockey Bro Dragons, which not he, the one I would have recommended. Well, yeah, I wouldn't kick that with. one. Yeah, but well, but he's not for the the fantasy aspect. Like the thought of me and my friends pretending to be elves and warlocks and sorcerers is something that he's just like i don't get this and he's like i get that you roll dice he plays other games with me i he plays plenty of board games with me but the thought of like taking on a role is something that he's not into and the thought of taking on a role a la dungeons and dragons is also something that he's like not really into um but i think i could sell him on a honey heist and he would power through it knowing that he only had to play once and could possibly never play again bless his heart but i i actually think what it is is that there's there's two different barriers to entry and they're opposed like i think there mm. is the barrier to entry that i was thinking about when i thought like oh is this is this game actually approachable to everybody and i think there are people who whose like hesitation about games like dungeons and dragons is like oh i feel uncomfortable like being a character and performing in front of other people for whom i can imagine that honey heist is a fucking nightmare because like you you can't be good at the game by being good at the mechanics and the way you can be good at D&D by knowing the mechanics really, really well. You have to like be good at improvisation um, in order to like really succeed in like lasers and feelings or Odang Bigfoot, etc. But the other barrier to entry is like people who are intimidated by having to learn a lot of rules and who don't find pleasure and joy in like getting into really crunchy stuff and figuring out how to optimize their character, etc. for whom honey heist or lasers and feelings is great because you don't have to learn that much stuff and you can do the thing that is really fun for you, which is probably like being a character and performing. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Percy. It's just two different types of, of barriers and of people in some ways. And it's not that the like rules, uh, 
weight of a D20 game is... <laughs> it's not that the rules weight of a D20 game is not an obstacle, because actually when I teach people those games, usually I'm just... Like, I cut out so much for the purposes of getting people to the point of playing. I'm just like, describe your character. I'll make the character sheet. Don't worry about that. I don't Mm -hmm. even give them a real character sheet. I, like, have a thing that is like, here is a thing I've typed up that explains what everything is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, in, like, explicit language. Um, But I have also met people for whom that that barrier is less of a barrier than being told to use an example character I rolled up last night. You're an incompetent honey badger thief wearing a cowboy hat. Go like that. feels <laughs> like much more of an obstacle to some people than mm-hmm. there's dice and math. I got to figure out and I don't know what I'm doing, but like there's a thing to be grasped there, which is mm-hmm. sometimes less hard than just being told like, go play. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, incompetent honey badger thief wearing a cowboy hat is basically a D and D character that I recently rolled. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> except it's a possum, but that's not what we're talking about today. That's that's not right now thing. <laughs> well, so looking at this from a different point of view, um, like what are one page RPGs doing? And for many people, um, they are entry points into game design. Um, many of these are hacks of other simple resolution systems um, that can offer new game designers a flexible framework that they can apply to whatever genre, style, or given circumstances they want to work with. Um, so much like, uh, you know, I want to do lasers and feelings, but it, I want it to be a road trip about my friends and Bigfoot. Boom. You have a new game. There's this broader culture of hacking in TTRPG design generally that's enabled by a lot of systems being open source or encouraging use of their mechanics. Um, And one of the places that that's most on display is in one-page games. Um, This is traceable in part to John Harper making Lasers and Feelings a Creative Commons game. Um, And John Harper, for those who are remembering his name, um, also did Blades in the Dark, which is in many ways a hack kind of, of um, Apocalypse World, uh, among other games. And so you can see this like genesis and this openness to other people messing around with your game to do something different with it um, that crops up a lot for these indie designers. I really wish there was a, this is a tangent, but I really wish there was a way to do the John Harper thing, uh, but in theater, and I'm sure there is, and I just haven't figured it out yet, but I'm like, I want to make a really significant bit of theater that can, like, generate income for me, and then I'll just make a little tiny theater that's totally free <laughs> like, oh, to mm-hmm. everything else. It's just, just I'm just thinking about that spectrum from, like, Blades in the Dark, which is a huge mainstream tabletop game, to mm-hmm. Lasers and Feelings, which is also very popular but like indie and creative commons and yeah (laughs) see i was thinking about like a a hackable playwright um which in terms of like oh did he die recently charles me 
doesn't Charles me like let you do whatever you is I, Chuck he might be like, dead? No, 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 he might be alive. He might be alive. I don't know. I didn't know what tense to Spreading use describing him. He's alive. He's, He's alive. alive. Oh Everything's great. So sorry. I was going to have a very bad night if you told me that he was dead. But doesn't he allow you to do like whatever you want with his yeah. text? He, he uploads all of his so, plays yeah. for free to his website and is like, yeah, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Which and so I love. in that aspect, and he's also like a successful playwright. Um, who like made money and also is produced a bunch because he makes his work very accessible. Um, but also because he allows like revisions and changes to his work, which in in the theater we feel is very like no no. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I feel like so- yeah, I feel like a thing that the theater industry could stand to borrow from what I love about the TTRPG design industry is this culture, yeah, of like. Sure, you you say this game is forged in the dark or this play, this game is powered by lesbians or or whatever, um, to sort of pay off that's what it is that's what thirsty sword lesbians I know, I know. Powered, lesbians forget. <laughs> powered by lesbians. Um to be fair, there is a lot of theater that is also powered by lesbians, but um, <laughs> we don't uh, credit it that way though. That would be absolutely buck wild to credit it that way. But anyway, I think, yeah, I think that like system of like, oh, we're going to be really transparent about like, here are the way, here's the way that this thing works. Um, You know, take whatever you is useful to you from it. Just like say that where, where you got it from feels a lot healthier as a culture to me than like the theater industry. Who's very like, we're, we're very like quiet about, you know, like we care very deeply about intellectual property and, you know, everything is, is this is our thing and you can't touch it. Although I guess that does manifest in some ways in like, I know that there is basically like a group chat of people who produce like indecent who are like, here's how we did the rain, mm-hmm. which is not quite the same thing, but. No, but there are, there's, there's like knowledge sharing, there's stuff like that. Um, stealing one's thunder, um, like that idiom comes from someone literally stealing the technique to make the sound of thunder. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Fun, fun dramaturgy fact. Um he was very mad. He said, they stole my thunder. Uh, and he meant it literally, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like, there's, I think there's a complication in that um, the way theater interacts with capitalism and the way that games interact with capitalism are very different. Like, I can sell and you can purchase. Thirst, I can't sell Thirsty Sword, Thirsty Sword Lesbians because I don't own it. But like, um, one can reproduce that much easier than one can reproduce a performance of a play or a musical. Um, and so I think that there's just like more moving parts. And I think that's part of why it's so safeguarded in a not great way. Um, in a way that like, I'm sure that Chuck me needed access to a lot of financial security to be willing to part with, um, his beloved IP that way. Uh, and I think that that's something to think of like who has access to do that and who doesn't have access to do that. And if plays were more accessible, either via performance or um, just like through dissemination, um, would we have the same feelings about it? I don't know. I feel like we're getting off topic. So sorry about that. But to to get us to steer us back, I think um, that makes what that makes me think of is the like, I think another thing that sort of unifies the genre of like one page micro RPGs um, is this sort of like scrappy, like indie sort of aesthetic or like affect or mindset. Um, like all of Grant Howitt's one page, maybe not all of them, but most of them are hand drawn and scanned. Like it's his handwriting and he draws little pictures of bears or raccoons or what have you. 
Um, and I think there is this sort of culture of like these, these are these really like, you know, scrappy indie games that don't take a lot of time to write, test and publish. Um, and I think one of the benefits of this is that designers can get a lot of opportunities to sort of like experiment um, or get experience with design before moving into more complicated systems. Like you can use this to sort of figure out how a mechanic might work in play in a lot of a lower stakes way, as opposed to like, this is one of many moving parts and it's harder to sort of figure out whether that one specific thing is working when it's in a system as big as blades in the dark versus like a lasers and feelings scaled game. So I think that that is one benefit of these from a game design perspective is that it offers an opportunity for designers to like really tinker with with things on a smaller scale um, and to not worry as much about like monetizing their games, um, which can sort of like be cool for getting people to actually play and engage with your work and maybe, you know, buy your bigger games and engage with those as well after they play your lasers and feelings hack that is really cute and fun and cool. The last thing that we wanted to touch on in this episode was this sort of like, or one of the last things we want to touch on this episode uh, is that a lot of these games are sort of wacky and lighthearted in tone. And I'm curious, aside from Grin, which I think is one example of sort of an outlier of this, um, how this sort of form or aesthetic might lend itself to more like serious, dramatic, scary subject matter or style. Yeah, can it? Well, I think it could. I think that... um... Like, I can imagine a version of 10 candles that could be printed on a page um, or a version of dread um, that, like, you just need to know that you're you're uh, a mechanic, um, unlike uh, Grin, where you're drawing cards is like you have to draw a certain number of tiles um, from the Jenga tower. And as a result. Um, that like increases the precariousness of doing it again later. Um, That's the same mechanic as Grin. Never mind. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> yes, no. That's what I'm saying. Like I can imagine doing that, um, and not needing 107 pages to outline it, um, which is I think sure. what Dread clocks in at. Um, so, like, I think that you can do horror in that way. I don't know if you can do, uh, like, large sweeping drama in a one-page format. Um, because I think, in many ways, as we've been describing this and as we've been thinking about um, these games, I'm thinking of them a lot as, like, a 10-page play. Um, in that they're, like, they're quick they still need to have a beginning, middle, and end, which many 10-page plays don't. Um, but they need to have that in order to be successful. And um, they're really useful for the people writing them to be able to like put out these short sketches um, in both games and in plays. Like It is useful to put on a 10-page play as a playwright because it helps you see what could work or what could not work in a larger context with like a lower stakes situation. Um, but I think most 10 page plays work either as horror or as comedy. Very rarely do you have family relational drama as successful in a 10 page play. Um, I think I could be wrong, but I think, and if you look at stuff like serials at the flea, um, well, formerly at the flea, um, or, uh, serials, which is a style that's been, uh, used elsewhere, um, where it's like, a 
you know, short play deathmatch um, where the plays that people like get another episode in future weeks and the plays that people don't like have to go back to the drawing board. Um, I think the things that do the best in those are either funny because you have time to execute like one good joke or are scary because you have the time to execute like setup and pay off one scare, um, but aren't really great for slow burns, which are usually dramas, um, family crises, etc. Um, and so I think like it should be good at comedy. It should be good at horror. It's probably not as good at like large Arthurian sweeping fantasy. Well, what you can't get in that one page length, even if it's not technically a page, is like depth. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't you you can't you can sketch out a character and a conflict, but you can't really get like what you were pointing at just now, Todd. You can't get a meaningful relationship between any player character and any NPC. I mean, you can come up with something that like has significance, but you can't build it. You, you can't have it seated like fully in a player's body the way that you can if like that npc has been around for the last 50 sessions mm-hmm. of your game <laughs> yeah i think this is a really apt comparison i think one page rpgs are the 10 minute plays of the ttrpg world because it's because i would also wager that these games are a lot harder to write than i maybe have made it sound like they are like i think it is probably very hard to do a game that is like on this scale that is like a get in and get out and it's engaging the whole way Mm -hmm. thing which is why like i think a number of them are successful because they are functionally the same game iterated over a variety of genres and styles whereas like that's that's intellectual property theft if you were to do it with a template yeah imagine i would love to see though the series of plays like, because Paul Matijevic has a whole series of games like Odang Bigfoot uh, that are, I don't remember all the names, but they're all cryptids. So it's like, oh, snap, Mothman is my roommate or something. <laughs> I want to play Oh, snap, Mothman is my roommate. It's so something bad. I'm not even I, like I'm making the title up because I can't remember the exact wording, but it's almost exactly that. I think Todd is looking it up. So we'll have him in a second. Oh, dang. Mothman won't move out. He said it was just for the weekend. Oh, well. Oh, snap. Mothman is my roommate is is a better title. No offense, Paul. Not to even. Um, but I have but, a okay, but my, pitch. We have it. We hold a 10 minute play festival. Everybody is gives gets one bland 10 minute play script and they put it in the genre of their choice. And then they do a festival of all the plays. <laughs> Well, that's what I was going to say. I would kind of love to see the iteration, like like the same thing for a 10 minute play festival of everybody like has to title your play in the same format and has to be like almost the same structure Mm -hmm. for every play, but like iterated into different goofy extremes. Well, and these often we kind of do that with my least favorite Uh, version the 24-hour play festival Mm -hmm. where the location is set there is a prop that must come on at some point there is a line that must be uttered and it it puts it 
like it's as close to iterative as we could get without giving them a script beforehand um, that the playwrights get to riff off of because because we don't like uh, intellectual property theft. Um, but that's I don't know. I I have often thought of uh like 10 minute play festivals or 24 hour play festivals as like the fantasy novels do this thing where they'll just like publish a bunch of short stories from a bunch of different authors and it's a way to like see who's up and coming in the world of fantasy or sci-fi like anthology just an an Mm -hmm. anthology yeah. yeah yeah um and I have often thought of 10 minute play festivals or 24 hour play festivals as that but for theater but i think it's probably closer to one shot one page rpgs um because it's not necessarily trying to put out like a good polished thing um that could inspire confidence in future productions from that person which is what an anthology is trying to do an anthology is trying to sell you on a number of different authors with very low stakes for buy-in um that you could then maybe pick up a book by so-and-so or so-and-so. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody goes to a 10-minute play festival and then goes to a play done by some of those people that they weren't already going to go to. No offense to anyone. But like, I, I don't think anybody gets inspired by that and like changes their purchasing habits. But yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think it's a useful way for people to, in a low-stakes way, put up a full production, full production, quote-unquote, um, of something uh, in a quick time frame that allows them to test out different ideas. And I think if we look at a 10-minute play festival or a 24-hour play festival, I hate that I have to say both, um, as like experiments in form as opposed to solidified things, I think people would take bigger swings with them. Um, And I think we might have a better relationship with those festivals. Yeah, it's almost as though, as with many things in the theater industry, um, they're not doing the things that they would be best at doing. <laughs> and we should, we should change what they're doing. Our next HowlRound article is going to be about how 24-hour plays should be experiments and not products. Um, let's, this turn, let's this episode turn into a litany of our critiques of 10-minute play festivals. <laughs> think we should sign off here but please enjoy the conclusion of our one shot of oh dang bigfoot stole my car uh with my friend's birthday present inside coming at you next week dungeons and drama nerds is produced by todd brian backus percival hornack and nicholas orvis and is mixed and edited by anthony sertaldeen Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com. Leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.